Hello and welcome to Think Like an Owner. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Lisa Forrest from Live Oak Bank. What's the threshold for customer concentration and how does that affect underwriting? So from Live Oak's perspective, we generally are considering any individual customer that represents 20% or more of revenue. We're not saying that if you have a customer concentration at 20% or more that for some reason we can't do the deal or the deal isn't doable or it's not a good deal. That's that's not what we're doing here. We're, we're taking our key customer concentrations. We're analyzing them. We're looking at them to see if there's enough sort of downside protection in the company. Is, is the company priced right? Is the debt load and is the loan structure acceptable and adequate such that if you lost that customer, that one key customer, could you still afford to say, pay your lender back? Could you still afford to pay yourself? Could you still afford to be paying the seller? So these are thresholds at which we're going to do some deeper diving. We're going to be thinking more about them. So any one customer at 20% or more, and it could also be sort of three customers that represent 80% of revenue. Again, there, there's not necessarily hard and fast, but generally there's going to be thresholds at which you you definitely should be doing more research and really understanding sort of the the, the competitive nature, barriers for entry, and, and those sorts of those sorts of elements when you're you're looking at your deal. There, there are those times where the sell side might think, well, I just haven't grown the company because I didn't want to. So this customer concentration isn't really important because once you come in, you can grow out of that concentration. Not a problem. It's going to be really easy for you, new buyer. Well, that, that may or may not be true. So those are some of the, the thought processes that you might hear from, from some of the sellers out there. And again, it's just a threshold in order for you to do more research that when you come to your lender, you've got some backup around key relationships. Great. Thanks, Lisa. To learn more about Live Oak Bank's search fund lending, you'll find Lisa and Heather on Live Oak's search fund landing page and find links to resources, FAQs, podcasts, and links to their office hours. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Hood & Strong and Oberly Risk Strategies. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman, and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small company today and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My guest for this episode is Costa Dio. Costa recently acquired a tree service business in Seattle through a self-funded search after working in private equity in New York. I've had the pleasure of getting to know Costa over the last two years and have found him to be one of the most insightful thinkers in the search space. A good portion of our conversation focuses on concepts like risk-reward and making transitions, topics he's given a lot of thought. Throughout our discussion, we talk about the differences operating in large private equity compared to in small companies, loosening his deal-breaker list, effectively investing his time learning the new business, and YouTube strategy for the tree service industry. It was fun chatting with you about all things trees and even some of the YouTube channels you've seen other tree companies do. Do you think you'd ever do a YouTube channel or anything like that? I think about it. The problem is, so like there's this one really big guy guilty of treason who's actually based out here. I don't know if I told you about him, but he was working you did. for a company. That's the greatest name for a YouTube channel I've ever yeah, heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was working for a company out here in the suburbs of Seattle. And I, I don't recall the name of the company, but the company had a crane fall on a house, which is just like absolute disaster. And, and like so many screw ups had to have happened for that to come out. Anyways, 
as a result of that, the guy stopped posting for a while because it was like total like, you know, disaster. But then the other thing I heard was that there was some like controversy about like who owned the content, like whether that guy owned the content or the company owned the content. And so I'm not really sure how he's progressed. I do see him on Instagram. He is posting on Instagram and I think he's left that company. So now it's like his own solo page. But there's this like interesting culture in this in this industry of like really intense tree climbers tend to be contract climbers. They're like hired guns who you can you can fly in for like a week of work and then they leave. And they bring all their own equipment, they carry their own insurance, and they make a ton of money per day. But they're not interested in being W2 employees and they're some of the best climbers out there. Wait, why aren't they interested in W2? Just because they they enjoy the freedom and flexibility of being a, a hired tree climber? Yeah, they can travel, you know, all over the country. They don't work full time because they make enough money. Like some of the best guys will make like a thousand dollars a day. So if you're doing a thousand dollars a day, you're like, okay, well, I'm, I don't want to work in my, like a seven to three, you know, full time job. I, I'm just going to work whatever, like a few days here or there and make my, my, my money. I don't know. Like there, there's basically companies structured around W2 employees, which is what my company is which allows you to build culture. It allows you to like allow, you know, create growth in, in, in the team over time. And then there's companies that are just production focused in terms of like, let's get trees chopped down ASAP. And like, that, that's how they operate. And so for them, these contract climbers are awesome because they're really high production. How much would you have to pay a climber to hire them full time? I'm assuming you wouldn't pay $300,000 for no, that person. No, no, no. In, in the Seattle market, it ranges from, depending on your level of experience, depending on if you have an ISA Arbor certification, I, it's anywhere I've seen from like 30 uh, for like a more junior climber to like 50 for like a very senior climber for an hour. And so it's a pretty good career. And, and at 50, you're like crew leading, you have the certification, you know, there's a lot of bells and whistles at that point. And I think like, if you don't have the certification, you're probably like the top end of the market's probably around 40 an hour. But, you know, like, that's a pretty, like, it's a, you know, it's a full-time job. You get health insurance usually. You usually have other benefits. And, you know, you're making 40 an hour. So that's, like, roughly 80K a year. Like, that's a, that's a you know, that's a great career, I think. It's the kind of thing that, like, you could start out of high school at the grounds worker level if you're willing to work hard and kind of haul brush for a while. So you'd start in, like, at 20 bucks an hour. Um, it's, this is, again, in Seattle, right? We Like, our minimum wage is higher and our competitive market is higher. But you could start at 20. You could put in a couple of years as a grounds worker, then become, like, a junior climber if you've learned all the basics of tree pruning and all that, which does require some work outside of, you know, work, like some learning outside of the, the office, so to speak. But you can kind of bridge yourself from 25 an hour to, like, 40 an hour over the course of, call it seven years, which is with no college education, without any vocational school or anything like that, even the no trade school, no certifications. So I think it's a pretty cool career in that sense. And then in over 10 years, you can be, you know, at 15 an hour in theory. Yeah, no kidding. Are you starting to recruit any folks out of high school or what's your, what's your kind of main recruiting base? Yeah, at the moment, no, that's like a long-term approach and I'm still in short-term mode in terms of like the transition and hiring. So I'm my current base is existing tree workers, you know, people with some experience in the field, especially because I need to hire some more climbers. But longer term, yeah, it would be awesome to create like a a real path for high schools. And and in this area, there's a couple like technical high schools that are more like vocational slash trades, you know, type high schools that it would be really cool to partner with them and make more of like a program. I know the largest companies in this industry, they have more of like a training academy type concept which like they have the scale to be able to do. But like tree services at the end of the day is, you know, just a business of finding really experienced professionals who know what they're doing and providing them to homeowners who don't know what they're doing. And so being able to like create experienced professionals and provide them with the experience and teach them how to get there, like that's differentiation in this industry. Yeah. Do you think that guilty of treason, uh, treason, uh, YouTube channel, do you think it helped with recruiting at all as part of maybe just folks reaching out to have. them or they would go to a school and show one of their videos of someone climbing a huge tree with a giant saw and crane? Like, do you think that was helpful? I, I think it probably, it must have been, I don't know for sure, but like, 
like the people who work in tree services, they love it. You know what I mean? It's it's like a passion industry. People love like the big trees. They like working in the big trees. Like you, we see this all the time. Actually, we'll see potential candidates from the Midwest or from like Florida or whatever who want to move to Seattle or the Pacific Northwest because like this is where the big trees are. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like the hub, so to speak, of like like this is like like you know like New York City for finance. Like this is like the area for like tree companies. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so in that sense, like having videos and like cool footage of you guys working on like awesome trees is that is sort of like a recruiting thing. And like, I've been thinking, do I want to get some like drones and like take drone footage of our guys up in trees and stuff? So these are, you know, these are the things I think about late at night. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the drone feels like an easy investment to make if it's going to help you on that recruiting side, even maybe not today, but eventually. And you can start getting the practice and developing a channel of some kind. It seems something that's more visually driven. Like, I don't know if... I'm not sure how many podcasts there are on Tree Service, but I imagine just as a guess that some of the more visual stuff like YouTube channels or Instagram might be more successful than like a podcast on Tree Service. Although, do you see others doing broader content strategies? The, the podcast side of it I've seen is more like the vendors in the space, like Single Ops, which is a big uh, tree-focused CRM. They have a podcast that you know focuses on tree service operations. I haven't seen a lot in the in in the realm of the actual tree operators themselves, but it's just like an unbelievably fragmented industry, and so there's not a lot of like institutional or even like I don't know, like even like John Wilson sized players in this in this space, as far as I'm aware. And so that makes it a little bit like I, I just don't think people have the time to focus on it like it is really mom and pop across the industry how'd you get to tree service it sounds like obviously just from our conversations you've been talking about search for quite a while and thinking about it for a long time what's the what's been your evolution your career up to this point yeah so look like my background was as a generalist right in private equity i did distressed debt before that and so all of my training was not industry specific all of my training was how do you identify a good industry? How do you identify a good business within that industry? How do you identify good people within that business? And then, you know, when I was doing distress tests, it was how do you identify the right security on the balance sheet? That was like the last level of that work. And so when I came to search, I took a very similar approach, right? Because I didn't have a search fund behind me. I was doing it self-funded. So I didn't really have like you know, committed capital as a private equity fund. I didn't have like quasi committed capital as a search fund. So I didn't have a funding advantage over any other buyers. I had no operating experience, right? Because I was all all coming from finance. So I didn't have like any kind of operating edge uh, over any other buyers. And so I was like, okay, I don't have any edges here. (laughs) Like what is the way in which I can outcompete? And the way I figured I could compete is that like what I am good at is learning industries and businesses really quickly. And so, you know, I think like a lot of searchers, they sort of create industry boxes. And part of the reason for creating industry boxes is so that they can focus and not waste time, you know, looking at a myriad of random things and having to learn new industries constantly, which makes sense if you actually have like an edge in those industries. I, since I didn't, you know, my focus, I was like, okay, I'm going to keep the industry culture wide open. And just like, that's where I'm going to spend my time is learning these random industries as they roll in the door. Because I did... I pretty much only spent time on brokered search. And so I looked at, I don't know, probably like a hundred odd companies and from really any industry and like all kinds of random things. And so really, it wasn't like I was looking for tree services. It was more that a tree services deal came to me and I looked into it and I was like, huh, like this industry works. There's something here. And then, you know, as I dug more into it, like the more I was able to confirm that. Yeah, and you eventually narrowed yourself even to just the Seattle area. So what did what did your search look like before and then what made you choose Seattle? Of course you're you're living there and you moved there, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about that that focusing down to Seattle. Yeah, so I started looking, you know, somewhat nationally and then I was like, okay, the best part of this small business search process, especially as a self-funded searcher where you end up owning a majority of the company, is there's this really big upside potential if you can own it for like 30 years and this is like your life now. And I realized after I was doing the national search for a while, I was like, oh, like these are a lot of places I don't actually want to live for 30 years. Like 
it's fine for a traditional searcher who will most likely exit in a few years. Like they think about it as like, this is a finite moment in my life. But for me, like, you know, like the buying and the selling of the business is the largest friction point. Like I would love to set up the buy the first time for a business I could own forever in theory and just throw off a ton of cash. And then maybe in like 30 years we sell and I'm one of these old guys selling companies. So then I basically cut out the national search and focused on kind of major cities that me and my girlfriend would want to live in, you know, long term. So then I was searching, on, you know, on that basis for a while. And then what I found is like in major cities, it's more competitive, right? There's more buyers. Like, yes, there are more sellers, but there are a lot more buyers too. And I don't, I didn't find myself being taken seriously by brokers or sellers who would be like, okay, like, are you really going to live in Boston or like I mean, that's a bad example because I did live in Boston, but, you know, like they just, there was no like tie in, you know, it's like when you try to get a job in some random city, they ask you like, what are your ties to the city? I couldn't express that to sellers in a meaningful way. And so then I kind of doubled down the focus on just Seattle or the Bay Area, because those are basically the two cities that I know the best personally. Like I grew up in the Seattle area. A lot of my extended family is in the Bay Area. So I know that's that area very well as, you know, as well. And so, and when I started doing that, especially in Seattle, it was like night and day in terms of the traction I would get with the brokers, traction I would get with the sellers. Like when you can tell them, like, I went to high school here, like I grew up in this suburb and, you know, like, oh, like you work in this area, like my best friend lives like down the block and like, you know, that kind of thing. It was just a different type of traction. And like, I really knew I was, you know, I was onto something with it when, the brokers, like the, you know how there's like, there's like good brokers and then there's like eh, brokers, like when the good brokers were starting to give me the time of day and like meet me for coffee and like they would suggest let's get a coffee. Like then I was like, okay, like something is working here. Cause like no broker in any other city had ever done that for me. And so that's, that's sort of how I ended up focusing more and more on, the, you know, on two cities. And then ultimately Seattle was like the most natural fit given I grew up here. And once you focused on Seattle, did you focus to a handful of industries or is that or to stay within seattle you just kept it wide open just any deal that looked interesting no kept it wide open i looked basically like i don't know like 40 ish mile radius around seattle but like yeah when you focus on one city your deal flow goes way down and so if anything like my industry filter was even wider than before because like that's you had to see you just have to look like like this is a little bit of a numbers game right like you just have to look at enough deals to figure out like what you can and cannot live with. One thing we also talked about or have talked about extensively is just the different points in a deal that can fail and how, you know, before searching, everyone builds a model to figure out if this is the right way to do it or, or whatnot. I know you've, you've done a little bit of the same, but I've had to move things around quite a bit. What was your deal process like? And then did your that model that you built hold up or what changes did you have to make? I think everyone who does search for at least several months kind of has like a list of stuff that matters to them and they have like a prioritization of that list and and like some of them probably fall into like deal breakers and some of them fall into like I can live with this and some of them fall into like I don't mind this at all and I think like the reality for me and maybe maybe I'm just like not a disciplined enough buyer but like I found finally to get a deal done like at least one of my deal breakers ended up being broken and yet I did my deal. And so I don't like, I think that was a reality for me. Like, for example, like in my deal, you know, there was a seller note PG that I did not want to give. And I just felt like on principle, that's not how seller notes are supposed to work. Like it's supposed to be seller has full risk on the business, blah, blah, blah. And I talked it over with my investors and my brokers and it was just, or not my brokers, my advisors. And it just became they were basically like, look, like this is pretty common in this end of the market. Yes, it's odd and doesn't really achieve the incentive alignment you want. But like, is this really the reason you wouldn't do the deal? And like, I think when I started my search, I would, I said yes. And when I was like on the one yard line to close the deal, I said no. And I closed my deal. Yeah. What, what goes into breaking down some of those deal breakers where they, they feel less like a big deal? Is it partly just that you've been, like just through the search process, you've seen a lot of search deals and done this process a lot, or you've talked to more searchers who talked about a wider range of things happening in their deals. And you're like, oh, okay, like this thing I thought before would be a deal breaker actually isn't that bad because more people do it than I thought. Like, what, Where do you kind of put, put that evolution? 
Yeah, I mean, I think like if you come from a private equity background like I do, and you go into search, you probably need to see like 30 to 40 deals to like recalibrate, you know, like what a small business deal looks like. And I think I have to go through that process of like, like if anything, I should have probably sat back down like a few months into the search and been like, okay, let's reassess my list of priorities and like what I actually care about. Like owner dependence is a big one, right? Like small businesses, you know, are very often heavily over dependent, owner dependent. And that to me felt like a deal breaker early on. And then it, like at some point I was like, okay, at the size that I'm searching in, like that's just what comes with the business. Like that's how these work. And like, like traditional searches are doing bigger things where there's actually like a manager layer and all of that, which is great. And I, and I appreciate the value creation that happens there. But like the range I was looking at on the self-funded side, like that just wasn't what these deals looked like. And so I think like there's, I don't know, I, I think I described it to a friend as like, there's like a little bit of like a grieving process of like, oh, you had this like amazing idea of what a self-funded search could look like. And then like, once you're like 20 deals in, you've like realized that vision has died. And then once you're like another 20 deals in, you are like, okay, like you've grieved about it. And now you're like ready to do a deal. What were some of the hardest deal breakers or things that would turn you off to a deal to let go of? For me, I brought up owner dependence because I think that was the hardest, right? Because like, especially like when you think about businesses that have a specific trade or a vocation attached to it, like a skill set, these are things where like I cannot just fill in for the owner and like work really hard and be good, right? Like it's one thing if it's like, oh, the owner works super hard as the manager and like keeping the books together and keeping everyone scheduled and all of that, like that I can like grind at and probably fill in. But most of these businesses, the owner is also an individual contributor on the actual like services level. And so like, that's the part that was really scary for me to kind of step into. And, you know, the, I ended up like doing the deal I did because, you know, the former owners were extremely good to work with in terms of saying like, no, like we'll give you a real transition period during which you can find, you know, like the right replacement hires to replace me at the individual contributor level without that, like, I don't, I couldn't have done this deal without that. And like, you're still, you're still dependent on them holding up their end of the bargain there, right? Like, they just got a chunk of money, they could just move to Hawaii, like the day after closing. And so like, so much of small business deal making fell down to like, trust with the seller. And we can talk more about that, because it's that's crucial. But in private equity deals, like, the day the deal closes, the seller tosses you the keys and you never talk to them again unless you're suing them for something. And so it's it, it's just that was like a big change. It goes hand in hand with owner dependence is that like small business acquisitions are not like a private equity deal. They're like a handing off of legacy that takes months. It, it's not like closing day isn't the day, so to speak. Yeah. Talk a little talk more about that because that's a interesting comparison you've done a lot of or done a lot of thinking of between much larger private equity deals where there's several layers of management and things generally are you know kind of established in businesses versus owners getting involved in all sorts of other stuff what have been some interesting comparisons you've seen between small business deals versus larger private equity deals just on the deal side like we'll talk about operations later but yeah deal side what what are some differences you've noticed yeah, so I mean, there's several, right? So like one is always the, you know, just like understanding the core financials is a very different process. Like in PE deals, we just bring in like like a big four accounting firm. We pay them like six figures to do a quality of earnings and like whatever, that's it, you're done. And like all you're really fighting about are the EBITDA addbacks, which is like a very different like commercial negotiation. Like in, in small business deals, there's a lot more of like, wait, what is happening here? <laughs> and like actually making sense of the financials, making sense of the general ledger. Like I did way more accounting in my small business deals than I had ever done in my private equity deals. Like I had never actually had to work with the general ledger or the trial balances or anything like that because we had highly paid accountants do that for us. And so I think that was a learning process and you'll find like different types of small businesses have like very widely varying levels of financial sophistication. 
which just, it just massively impacts your ability to understand what you're buying. So I think that's one. Two is in private equity deals, you spend a lot of time with the management team because almost always the management team's coming with to you. And like, unless you're like hiring a whole new C-suite as part of the deal, which, you know, that happens, but it's not the most common transaction. And so you spend a lot of time with the managers pre, you know, closing, pre-signing to figure out like what they're all about. You often meet their level twos or level threes because in bigger companies, like everyone knows that the, like the operator and the owner are different entities and like the owner can sell and doesn't mean anything changes for the operator because the operator is still there. And like, that's just not the case in small businesses, right? Like the owner and the operator are the same person. And so when you have the owner transition, it's like you're ripping out like the spinal cord of the business and like inserting this new guy as the spinal cord. And so like, as a result, like one, small business owners almost will never let you meet their employees, right? And two, like the impact of the owner leaving is massively more impactful than it is in private equity deals where you just, you have, you have operating consistency. So I think like learning how to navigate that and kind of try to learn what is the company culture without actually being able to talk to anyone in the company was a challenge and something that I think like search fund acquirers really have to spend time thinking about and like digging into in a way that you just don't like, it's just easier in private equity. Yeah. What are some ways that you tried to learn more about the the culture of your business without talking to many of the employees at, at all? It's really, you just like talk to sellers, right? And like, you know, like what did they look for when they're hiring somebody? Like, you know, like you, because you're gonna have to make replacement hires almost for sure in a small business, is especially in the self-funded side. So like, I would ask sellers questions like, okay, like to replace you, you know, we need to get somebody in X position. Can you like tell me what does exposition look like? Like, what are like, what is the type of person you would hire? You know, like what types of skills, what types of like characteristics and qualities. And like that tells you a lot about, you know, what the company culture is because like, yes, they are obviously very important in the business, but they probably have a couple other people who you basically need to hire like one more of. And so it'll tell you kind of about the type of people they've already hired you know, the businesses are too small for things like Glassdoor or whatever. In theory, you would use Glassdoor, but you can't really do that. I think the other thing I I like to look at was like the Google reviews or the Yelp reviews and whatever. And it's always interesting to see like, what did customers notice? And so like, in my deal, I noticed that there were a lot of reviews that said stuff like the crew seemed to really enjoy what they were doing. You know, like comments like that, which like, I don't like, that's just unusual i think like i don't know like i don't i don't think i've ever seen like a landscaping company with like oh yeah the crews were like seem to have a lot of fun out there like that just tells you a little bit about the culture in a sort of a, a roundabout way yeah it's interesting using reviews for some due diligence because there's there's folks i've talked to who've looked at reviews and and saw that like to try to get a sense for how involved the owner is and if tons of reviews, like 40% of reviews mentioned that the owner was really nice. And, and when they did all their, their work for him, like maybe the owner is a lot more involved than, than you think if, if they're getting mentioned so much. Did you notice that? Like, did you notice that there were, there was any certain, there was certain employees mentioned frequently in reviews or was it pretty wide ranging? It was pretty wide ranging. It was a little bit of it just because of the owners being so involved, obviously, but the reality was that our customers, they mostly, inter- they have one interaction with the sellers at like the estimate point, but that most of their interactions are with the office staff, which are totally different people. And so what I have found is obviously the actual service work for them needs to be done correctly. And they care a lot about that. But a lot of their perception of how things went is like how easily is the communications flow with the office team. And so I actually saw a lot of reviews that complimented specific people in the office, even though they don't do any of the actual, you know, service work. And so like, I think that was interesting to me to listen, realize like, oh, like, and I see it even now after we've closed, like when customers are frustrated, it's often nothing to do with the tree work. The tree work was done perfectly. It was done to the contract specifications, you know, all of that. It was really like, there was a gap between expectations and reality. And that gap was created by, you know, like 
our, our on the office side, like our communication is not exactly, you know, reflecting what they should have expected. And that can be like little things like, oh, I didn't realize how many like chips, like wood chips they were going to leave behind. And like when a customer tells us like, hey, you can tell the crew to leave wood chips. It's on us at the office level to be like, okay, but like FYI, it's going to be a driveway full of wood chips. And you know what I mean? And like, if we don't communicate that, like the, the crew doesn't know, they're just doing their, they're doing what their job is, which is to dump chips out of the chip truck. And so like, there's these interesting moments of like expectations versus reality, which we can really manage at the office level that I'm trying to like, that's what I'm trying to get better at. Cause that, that I can directly impact, you know, as the person in charge of the office and like com- customer communication side, because the thing about this business is that the tree work side were excellent. Like the crews are excellent. The team is excellent. I know the actual quality of service is really top notch. It's really like, it, it's a weird industry because the customers don't know what they want, you know, or what they should have. Like, like you can look at a tree pre pruning and post pruning, and it might not look that different, but it's actually been like really carefully pruned on the inside of the tree for, for health and structure. And like a customer, I don't like they, that's not might be in their head what they thought they were going to see. And so there's some like expectations management that we need to get better at in turn, like in terms of just how we explain stuff to customers. Yeah. What are, what are some ways that you think you, that process is going to improve? Is that a training systems? Like where do you think that falls in terms of opportunities for improvement? I think it, I think one thing that I'm hoping to do in the future is to provide more reference materials for customers, because I think a lot of the communication happens over the phone, which is great, but I think then customers forget, you know, what we talked about. And so I think like moving more and more into writing or like, like as an example, one of the things we do is we provide a treatment for uh, birch trees and part like in order to provide this treatment for the birch tree there is some stuff the customer needs to do after the fact in terms of watering it sufficiently and, and, and other stuff. And like, we explain this to them verbally, but I like one thing I would love to do is have just a very easy handout that we can give them and say like, you know, your birch treatment has been applied. Don't forget to do X, Y, Z. Otherwise the birch treatment might not work. And like, that's because then the otherwise customers are unhappy a year later when like the treatment didn't do what they thought it would do. But again, this is like a communication issue, right? It's not a, it's not a, quality of service issue yeah sounds like a good opportunity for a youtube channel where you can have different playlists for different <laughs> treatments or different no you're um, right things that you did or like here's like how many you know wood chips this operation is going to put on your driveway like yeah this here's is how the process works like yeah and then you can just ask them how much of this do you want you know that sort of stuff <laughs> And you could like link youtube videos to different docs you could still create like a pdf or a web page and then just embed or link different videos that are that are pertaining to that thing. There's probably a way to do that. It's funny you say that just because my instinct is so like, just write it down and send it to them. But you're right that like the visual of a video is probably the more accurate way to do it. It, it could be an interesting way to do it, especially if you're able to automate it in some way where, I don't know if you can tag YouTube videos, but if there was some system on your end for like order management or whatever, where if they order this birch treatment, it like it builds a report for them and then just pulls in all YouTube videos tagged with that treatment or general and it pulls them into this web page or PDF and emails it to them. You know, something like that would be kind of cool. I don't know if you could build that or what that looks like, but I mean that's a future problem. The first thing is just have a video that I can send them. Um the yeah, step one. The the next level of like pulling it in automatically we're far away from. Yeah. Where where else do you think that area of office to customer communication can improve? So a big part of it, I think, will be more on the CRM front, which I know it's like so cliche for a searcher to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to install CRM. I get it. That being said, the I think one of the big benefits we will have is like all of our contracts are handwritten, right? Because we have an estimator go out in person and like write down what the you know, what we're going to do for them. And then gives them a copy, you know, like the carbon copy behind the, the form. And that's kind of the only piece of material they have that exactly says what it is. And they often will lose it. And like, you know, like that's a point of communication gap. And so one of the things that I am looking forward to once I get a CRM in place 
is basically being able to memorialize every bid we do into the CRM and resend that to them and then have them check yes, like on their browser, on their phone or whatever. And so like, then it's very clear, you know what I mean? And I think that clarity will just, I think it'll alleviate a lot of issues that we we sometimes face. Like, because we also like, some of our estimates become quite involved where it'll be like, we're gonna, you know, work on these nine trees of which like three of them are options and like six of them are the base work. So like, here's your bid for the six, here's the price for option tree one, option tree two, option tree three. And then we need to go call them later and say, okay, do you actually want to do these options? If so, which ones? And therefore this is your actual price. Like all of that happens over the phone. And which is, you know, it works mostly fine, right? But it's like the two or 5% of the times that like somebody forgets what they said or we didn't write down exactly what they said like that creates like 90% of the issues we deal with in the office, you know? And so I think like the more of that we can move to like a written record of like, you check yes on this, yes on this, no on this. Like, it's just gonna, my hope is that turns like 5% of issues to 1% of issues, but also like those issues are easier to resolve because we have like a written track record of everything. Yeah, is that something where you give folks or your, your service side iPads, they can show like the customer like contracts when they're there. I don't think we, I mean, potentially on for now, we just have to print them out, right? Like that, like that's step one. Like, and so we do that currently is we give the crew like a, the, a copy of the work order, like of that contract page. So they have it with them when they're on the job site. But I think like even just having it be typed out with like the customer having like checked them off just makes it a little bit more, official and it also means that the customer on their computer can go and like print it themselves because they have a live like a dynamic web page that can always check to see what their order was and they're not just relying on like the handwritten estimate that they that the crew member gives them it just like it'll ease things so much in terms of like the customers being confused and just like limiting the number of calls we get in that are easily resolved you know what i mean but they would have been we could just avoid the call in the first place yeah, I imagine they could also pay online too. Because I think you talked about how a lot of customers still pay via check, right? Yeah, we process a ton of checks every week because because we you know we charge them the processing fee if we if they run a credit card. And so one of the things that'll happen once I launch a CRM is they'll be able to make ACH payments for free through the payment portal, or if they want to take the process the credit card fee, they can pay through that portal on for the credit card side as well which at the moment, the only way they can pay by credit card is to call into our office. What's been your transition like from going from searching and working on this business and learning all about it to actually running it and running teams and running the office and seeing how things actually work with you know the, the real employees? How's that all been for you? My experience has been that, and I was talking to some of my investors about this, like some of the stuff that I thought would be easy has been harder than I thought and vice versa, which is probably like, like said differently. I I feel like I was wrong about almost everything, but you know, like as an example, like I have a finance background and accounting background, like getting the accounting system set up and cross and pulled over to the new entity and everything has been like an unbelievable pain. Everything about it makes me want to like burn into it to the ground and like into it being the publisher of QuickBooks. And I don't know, like all of that's been way harder than I thought. And it's just like such a distraction. But the problem is like with accounting is the more you kick the can down the road with accounting, the harder it is to recover it because like your accounting is happening every day. So that's why I had to prioritize it. So like something like that's been harder than I expected. You know, like we have to find a new office place or like, in theory, when you're like in diligence, you can see all these places listed and like, it feels like, okay, yeah, there's space and like, we'll find a spot. It'll be okay. And then once you're in practice and you're like, oh, well, like this place won't let us store chainsaws indoors because of the gas in the tanks. And like that place has like really awkward access. I was going to add like five minutes every day for every truck, which really adds up in terms of productivity. Like all of a sudden, like the places we can actually put ourselves goes way down. So there's been like, that's been the side that's been harder than I expected. Easier than I expected. I was really worried about the team kind of looking at me as like, who are you? Like, you're not from Tree Services, all of that. They've been actually very gracious and like very welcoming. 
And so that's been a really welcome surprise of, or not, not surprise, I guess, but just like a welcome outcome that they're all like, they understand. I know nothing about trees. Like I've gone out in the field a few times with them and like they're, as they're doing the work with me, they're explaining like what they're doing to me. Like they're kind of training me almost. And so that's been, I think, like a really pleasant outcome and like something that I thought was going to be a lot harder being easier than I expected. Also the customer communication side, while I did, you know, we obviously talked about the the difficulties with it, but I thought the customer service side of it was going to be a real bear and like something that I struggled with and found annoying. And I think like, I've actually enjoyed that a lot because, you know, coming from private equity world, we don't have wins like almost ever, right? Like you work for months and months and months and then the deal dies. And then you work for months and months and months and then the deal dies. And then like maybe a deal happens like once a year. And so like the moments you have a win are so far, like few and far between. That's how I've been conditioned. Like small business, like I feel like I'm getting dopamine hits, hits like, every 10 minutes it's like a totally different pro- like life and so i that i've actually enjoyed the customer service side of this a lot because when a customer calls and like you know we have my office assistant and like scheduler they kind of are the first line of defense but if there's something like complicated then they'll pass it to me and like being able to resolve those moments of conflict i've actually found very personally gratifying it, it doesn't scale i get that like we're gonna have to like it doesn't make sense for every customer resolution to come to me at the end but for now, like at the scale of business we are, like that is my job. And I've enjoyed that a lot more than I thought I would. Yeah. How helpful has that learning been? Kind of seeing all these customer service interactions firsthand. Has that been pretty educational? Oh, yeah. Super educated. It, it's allowed me to like actually understand the handoffs from customer from because they start with our office staff to schedule an estimate. Then they work with the estimator who goes out in person. And then they come back to the office staff to schedule the job. Then they go to the crew who's out there to do the job. And then they come back to the office staff to get the invoice and pay. And so there's actually like a ton of handoffs here that are somewhat like you don't even notice. And so the fact that I'm, I am the office staff with, you know, one or two other people means that I'm actually like feeling every handoff, like to the other, to the, you know, the, the crew teams and back to us. And that like, allow that's been super educational in terms of knowing okay this is the friction this is a handoff that's actually hurting or that's causing confusion between you know us and them like like a big example we face all the time is parking because we have to park our trucks and we operate in seattle proper which is like you know small residential neighborhoods and so like there's a lot of customers that they don't want to pay for the no parking signs that we could put out, you know, get a city permit for no parking and all that. So they say like, no, I'm going to work with my neighbors and we're going to block off this section of the street for you. Fine. But then like we at the office level need to be reminding them constantly like, hey, your tree job is in four days. Remember, you got to reserve parking for us. And then the night before, hey, we're coming tomorrow at this time. We need this parking clear. And like if for some reason that doesn't happen, the crew can show up and they have literally nowhere to put the truck. And like, it, it totally screws up the day. And so like, there's some of these like very key friction points that I've been able to kind of understand just because I am part of the actual flow. I'm not like sitting above the flow. Yeah. Earlier we talked about the difference in deals between larger private equity and small business. Broadly, operationally, what does the, how does that compare from your days and private equity to running a small business now where obviously you're much more involved and you interact directly with employees versus at the private equity level. But I imagine there's some differences too in just how big these companies are versus how small this one is. Yeah, I mean, I I was sort of in private equity, I was sort of middle market, upper middle markets. These were much larger businesses, obviously. If I had known I was going to do search, I probably would have done lower middle market first. But I at that time didn't know I was interested in search. Um, I mean, they're just totally different. Like, I, I was, I was listening to your podcast with David Dodson a couple of days ago because I was out in the field doing some work myself. There were some like solo jobs that we got overbooked for. So I was like, you know what? I'll tackle these, whatever, and just like did a poor job, honestly, and need to go back and like fix things. And but I was so I was basically I was out there doing these tree treatments and listening to your podcast with David Dodson while I was doing them. And he's talking about how he's like, yeah, good leaders are super precious with their time. And they, there's this like specific, he was making this point about how 
like the difficult part is not going from individual contributor to manager. It's going from manager to manager of managers. Because when you go from IC to manager, you can kind of fill in and just work more and kind of fill in like what, you know, just to fill in the gaps, which is literally what I was doing while I was listening to the episode. And I was doing it poorly. And it was like, obviously not the right use of my time. And I should have just like organized the schedule better. But anyways, it, it was just like a slap in the face while I was doing it being like, okay, I need to be better. But um, no, my point to your question was like, this business, we're, there's no manager of managers, right? There's just me at the manager and then a lot of really good individual contributors. We're not at that level to be have managers of managers. Whereas in private equity, every single deal I did, you know, by nature was like the people I was interacting with were always managers of managers of managers of managers. You know what I mean? Just so many levels removed. And so like, I think in PE, we were always like our CEOs and CFOs were extremely strong leaders. And they also knew how to manage us as investors. And so there was this constant dynamic of we're partners with you, but also like, don't get too into the weeds because you guys are the investors, we're going to manage the operations. And that's actually the way we wanted to be also at the PE level, because for our business as a private equity firm, it's not scalable for us to be involved, you know, in depth with every business, right? We try and plug in when there's problems or gaps, but like a good business is the one that we can leave alone and let the CEO, CFO manage it. That is now obviously a night and day different where like every problem in the business, like I am the ultimate owner of, right? Like any, like down to the level of like, hey, like no one took out the trash this week. Like, okay, I'll do it because like, otherwise no one will. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's so, it's so like viscerally different in terms of the level. Like in either case, we were in theory, the owners of the business, but this is like a different type of ownership. Yeah, it feels like a much more direct ownership. Any broad advice for folks contemplating a search or in the middle of a search? I don't know. I like if anything, I what I have found is that there's a lot of different search models now, right? And you've had speakers come on and talk about the different models of search and espouse like what is better, what is worse, and like the rea- or like what are the pros and cons. And what I have found is like there is significant personal preference here. Like, I think the the business I'm in, I'm having a lot of fun. It's it's stressful and it's a lot of work and, and all of that, but I'm also having a lot of fun. I do not think it would be a good fit for a lot of people, especially if you just went to like business school and spent like 200K on a business school, you know, tuition and like want to be like a CEO. Like this, like I'm not a CEO, you know what I mean? Like that would be like silly of me to say, cause like it doesn't make sense. And so... I, I I can totally understand better now than I did before why like a traditional searcher coming out of business school doesn't want to buy a business like this because it like doesn't really fit where their life goals are. It doesn't fit kind of the track they've put themselves on. But for me, like I really opted into this. Like I selected out of finance to select into this. That's a very different path and different process. And I'm like very pumped about it. So I think like if there's advice to give, it's really like, to be honest with yourself about like, what do you hope to do? Like, is it going to stress you out to like not be a manager of managers and to be a manager of individuals? Like if that's not the life you want to live, like a business like at the self-funded scale is probably not the right fit, even though you can own more of it, like you can own all of it in theory. So I think that's, there's, there's kind of like the financial realities of it, but there's also like a lot of like, what is, where are you going to find the personal fulfillment? And I think that probably, like, I think a lot of searchers get into it with an idea and then like halfway through, they should probably reassess and be like, okay, wait, what do I actually want out of a search deal? Yeah. What did you start your search? What were your personal preferences when you started your search versus, you know, three fourths of the way through when you found this deal and started to get into the weeds a little more? I think I, when I was starting out, I was looking for bigger companies and I was looking for businesses that had more of like an operational manager layer, kind of like a traditional search would look for. And what I, as I dug into it, I became friends with a lot of people in the search community who had sort of done both sides of this, like bigger traditional search deals that are more established, smaller, you know, like more of these like independent trade companies. And as I dug into that, what I found was for myself as a relatively younger person, less operational experience, all of that, 
I really actually liked the idea of these smaller independent trade companies because it felt like I could show up and like kind of my hard work could translate directly into business performance. It was a lot more one-to-one, right? Which is exactly what David Dodson was talking about. And then eventually I can kind of get it to that traditional search size deal. But I just didn't feel like I was nearly as differentiated to be able to buy one of the bigger companies and sort of take that one to the next level. And so I really, I, I, as I got more, like, I thought I would go the other way, basically. I thought I would keep looking for bigger and bigger businesses. And that's what I think a lot of searchers do. I became more and more comfortable with buying a smaller business as I understood from, you know, hanging out with friends who own these types of businesses. Like, what does it actually mean to live in it? And like, one of the things I did during my search is I kind of did a like, quote unquote, job shadow where I spent a couple days with a few different, you know, searchers who had already closed on their deals kind of understand like like when you're in private equity being an operator has this like weird mystique to it and like we don't know what they do and like somehow they do it and cash flow comes out and so like that's i think for me it was important at some point to go and actually be in a couple of these really smaller trade businesses and understand like what is real life and kind of lift the curtain a little bit and that got me a lot more comfortable with it and actually got me excited about it yeah that was really smart to do the different job shadows i remember you talking about that uh, and getting to see a whole bunch of different industries too, I think as well. Like they weren't just trades. I think you, I can't remember all the different companies you looked at, but those was, was a pretty wide range. Yeah, and I mean, I I went and visited Chase Murdoch, who's been a guest on your podcast, and he's got a you know a few different eclectic businesses that are really cool. And then I I visited a couple landscaping companies. So yeah, that that process for me was just eye opening in terms of like oh like. Not that it's not hard, but it's not like mystical, you know what I mean? And like, I think that was important for me to get over the hump where like I was really focused, I realized on buying a business that had managers of managers because I didn't know what they did, you know what I mean? And I was like, okay, well, at least if I buy a business with managers of managers, the managers that I'm managing know what they're doing. And like, that was where the, I was sort of finding comfort And then I think that's by going and visiting smaller businesses, I was able to get a little bit more comfortable with this idea that, no, the businesses that it's just like a manager of ICs, like, it'll be okay, because the ICs know what they're doing. And they like, are, you know, they're, they're not looking to lead, like, they like their jobs, they enjoy it, as long as you don't like mess with the culture, and you buy a business with good culture, like, that's actually workable. And they they will often just be excited about the fact that the new manager has a new 20 year growth vision, because their old manager was kind of ready for retirement. And so once I kind of got comfortable with that concept, it really opened the doors in terms of like what deals I could look at. Yeah. What are some 10-year growth ambitions you have for this business in Seattle? Are you going to look to acquire other tree businesses or just keep hiring aggressively? Like what are some, what are some 10-year visions or goals that you might have? Yeah, it's a good question. So we have a really good core group of guys right now. I think when I think about like 10 years from now, what would success have looked like? I think retaining like almost all of them will be a core element of that. And like, hopefully they're making like significantly more money as part of that because they've sort of leveled up as the business has leveled up. So I think that to me is one pillar of success in theory 10 years from now. I think a second pillar of success is basically linear growth, which I view as like adding crews and adding like equipment. So like we, we kind of currently operate about two crews And then so like getting the third crew and then the fourth crew and then the fifth crew, like I don't have a target in terms of 10 years from now what that looks like, but that's like linear growth, right? Like one crew at a time, so to speak. And then, and so we should do that and that'll happen. And then I think the third kind of what I view as sort of like nonlinear growth potential is one of two things. One is acquisitions, like you said, which like I'm not prepared to do it right away because there's just too much to like learn the business. I want to wait till I've learned it. But acquisitions is always an opportunity. There's over 50 mom and pop tree companies in Seattle alone. And so the, 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 the runway is there. So that's one. And then two is service line expansion, right? Where tree companies in general, one of the big areas of growth they have found is plant healthcare, like providing treatment to trees and protecting them against infestations and stuff like that. And so what that does is it takes your existing base and allows you to sell back into it in a more recurring way. And so I think that's a form of nonlinear growth that I would love to like 10 years from now be able to say like, yep, yeah, that's a service line that we offer and is a meaningful part of our business. Again, like that's not like, 
these are things like the next year or two is like, don't screw it up and like figure out how to support the guys who are here and make sure they're happy and like growing personally, financially, all of that. But and, and, and pursue linear growth, right? That's like the most obvious next step is to pursue linear growth, which is the third crew and then the fourth crew. But those like that non-linear growth side of it is, I think, like 10 years from now, something I, I hope I will have achieved. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. I want to get into some closing questions here. What college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted? Yeah, I was thinking about this one and what I one of the things from leaving private so private equity is a pretty solid career path, right? Like it's a very clear path to making a lot of money doing interesting work. The downside of it is like the lifestyle can be brutal obviously, but it's a pretty low risk career and I think like the college class I would probably teach is around risk taking and and really decision making with with a risk framework, if that makes sense. And this comes from my first job, right? My first job was in distressed debt, which is this really crazy world of like balancing risk and reward constantly and trying to figure out like because like every deal in theory is a bad deal, right? Like if you were a venture capitalist, you would have looked at every deal we ever did and like been like, no way would I touch this. There's no potential here. And like our funds, like net returns are still better than like VC median returns. You know what I mean? And like that's a function of being able to really carefully balance risk and reward. And so like it was really foundational for me to learn from the partners at that firm how to balance risk and reward. And it has a lot of impact on like the way I think about my personal life and how I make career decisions, like how I made the jump into search. And I, so I would love to like, I don't have like a class designed yet, but in theory, I would love to teach a class that like helps folks, you know, like actually write down what are the risks they're about to take in their personal life. Because I think like when I talk to my friends about changing jobs or changing career paths, going back to grad school, whatever, like they think about it in a very like, this is scary, but they haven't written it down as to like, why is it scary? What could actually happen? Like, what are the potential risks and down, like downsides, upsides, all of that. And I just find like that framework makes it so much easier to make decisions. And so whether or not it's like, I'm not, I don't want to like tell anyone what decision to make. I just want to help them like actually rationally think through what is the right decision for them. Yeah. Is there a framework or certain questions you ask yourself to figure out that perfect risk reward balance for any decision? I don't have a clear framework. I, I have this one concept from one of my coaches in high school. I had gotten into college and I had already committed. I, I applied early decision to my college. So it was like, you're in, once you're in, like you can't choose, like opt out. And I had applied into a dual degree program. So like I was super committed. Like I was in these majors, it was done. And I was having this like moment, like my senior year of high school being like, oh man, like, did I overcommit to like, maybe I don't like most of my friends were going into college, you know, undecided and all of this thing. And she was like, look, like start doing it. And if it's not working, like figure out a way to change it and like fix it. And I felt like that was very, like just that like mental model of like, oh, like you don't have to like continue down a path just because you selected that path, right? Like you can give yourself license to like fix the issue and like figure out a solve like that for me was super helpful in thinking about the downside risks and every decision i make which is like the every bad decision starts you down this downside risk path you know on the decision tree and being able to say like no i have the power and like the agency to stop that path and turn it into something else it, it, it allows your like brain to say like, okay, if we're in this downside path, it doesn't mean like it continues on all the way down to hell, right? Like it tells you like, hey, like we just need to recognize that and then fix it. And like, I, like that's one of the things that has helped me take more risk in my life is, you know, saying like, hey, like you have the agency to go solve it when things are going poorly. I like that a lot. That's a really good one. It's probably one of my favorites. What's a strongly held belief that you've changed your mind on? I was thinking about this. I think the, I wouldn't, I don't know if I've changed my mind on the core point of this. Okay. So like we have this concept in, in investing, like institutional investing of like, what is a good business? Right. And like, there's all these parameters of like, what is a good business? And when I've come to search world and like talk to all these folks who kind of, they didn't start an institutional investing world. They started in entrepreneurship world. 
like their conception of a good business I have found tends to be different. And in many ways, it can be more accurate in terms of what is a good business for the entrepreneur. Whereas like when I, when I put my investing hat on, we're thinking about like, what is a good business for an investor? And I think like I started out thinking that like that is the correct definition, right? Is what is a good business for an investor? Because oh, on the time span of a hundred years, like that is actually the business that will last the longest is what is a good business for an investor, not not the one like the good business for the entrepreneur. But the reality is, is like, it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter if you're right over a hundred years. It matters if you're right in your lifetime. And so once you like realize that and you're the entrepreneur, like it's like, oh, well, no, actually what matters is what is a good business for the entrepreneur. Again, they're not like super different. And I think the good business for an investor is still like the generationally right answer, but it does like, it, it broke my kind of view, like my kind of by boxed view of what a good business is. And to dig into it, right? Like a good business for an entrepreneur, it can be things like allows them to live a lifestyle they want. It can mean like generates enough cash flow for them, but doesn't necessarily like scale, right? Like there's so many good businesses out there that are like two to 300K a year for the entrepreneur. They enjoy the work, but it's not overly taxing. They go to every baseball game for their kid. And like, that is a, like, you cannot tell me that's not a good business, even though from like, it probably has a bunch of external, like ex extrinsic risks associated with it. That would mean that from the investor standpoint, it's not an investable business. It's not a good business from the investor standpoint, but it's like, if you can get that thing to like run along for a 30 year career, like it's fine. Like your life is good and like work, things worked out, right? And so like, whereas an investor, like a good business for an investor is like things that is, you know, resistant to recessions, resistance to seasonality, resistant to, you know, like being outdated by technology, like all these other types of things that are, again, like, like I said, I still think that is the right way on a generational scale, but it just doesn't matter for you, the entrepreneur, the owner operator. Yeah. Speaking of great businesses, what's the best business you've ever seen? I've seen a lot of good businesses and like that's, I've been kind of really lucky to have my whole career be deal making so far. So I've gotten to see like hundreds and hundreds of different businesses and meet management teams. I've loved that about my job in private equity. I think the best business I've seen, and this one actually a little bit crosses like straight, like kind of sits on both sides of good for an investor, good for entrepreneur is ship management, which is basically for commercial like ocean going commodity vessels so this is like dry bulk vessels um, that are shipping like coal or, or things like like grain and coal and stuff like that or other metal ore then there's like oil tankers those are the two that i really looked at a while ago so basically you have like ship owners the people actually own the ship you have ship charterers which are the people that have cargo to be moved and like they generally interact directly with each other, right? Like they're basically renting the ship to move their stuff. But then you've got this layer of ship managers who on behalf of the owner will do basically the technical management of the ship, like, you know, like actually like doing all the maintenance, doing all the repairs, like making sure it's like getting refueled, all of that kind of thing. They can do crewing. So they'll, the, the crew management, so they'll actually get the crews for you. And then the third leg of it is commercial management, which is going and finding the charters for you. So you can think about it almost like a property manager, right, in real estate, but for ships. And it's kind of a sweet business because it doesn't require a lot of people. It's pretty capital light and it's super sticky because like it's not usually like if you can pull together 10 to 15 vessels from a few different owners, you can give them economies of scale they didn't have on their own. And so like when if you have less than five vessels as an owner, you're probably not making enough money. Like you're, you're, not, you're not big enough to like have economies of scale. But once you're like at like 50, you are. And so this allows them to access economies of scale. And then the, what's really interesting about it is it's actually very counter cyclical because like the shipping industry is like super up and down, very cyclical industry. But what happens is when you're in a bad part of the cycle, the ship owners go bankrupt, they give their ship to a bank. And so even if the ship owner used to manage it themselves, now the bank owns the ship, they can't manage the ship. So they have to use a third party outsource manager. And so like at the worst parts of the cycle, there's ships moving into third party management, not out of third party management. 
That's really interesting. Did you buy that? Did, did your fund or your firm buy that company? No, I tried. I, I was like networking with a bunch of people trying to figure out like what somebody sell to me. And then this is the problem was that they are like very good businesses to own as an entrepreneur. They don't really need the capital from us. And so they were like, no, basically there's one bigger manager. It's called V Ships or V Group that Advent, which is a big private equity firm, Advent Bottom, I think in like 2012, and they might still own it actually. So there's only been one major transaction in that space that I'm aware of, but all the smaller, like if you can manage like 20 ships as a third party manager, like it, that's a good for entrepreneur business. Like you're going to like have a good life. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, thanks Costa for sharing a little bit of time and on an early Saturday. We appreciate it. Good to chat with you and record one of these conversations. We have them all the time. So it's fun to actually hit record and get to get to share this one a little more widely. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. This has been fun. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to see what the, the chopped up final version sounds like. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Up Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better. Thank you.